eighteen one. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Nineteen one. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. 21:24-25. And the people of Israel departed from there at the time, from every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening. Welcome to Grace Community Church downtown. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word tonight, pinch hitting for Jason. Um, We are almost finished with the most depressing book in the Old Testament, being the book of Judges. I used to think it was Ecclesiastes until I did the in-depth study of Judges, and now I'm convinced this, this one takes the cake. And of all the chapters or the sermons that we've done so far, this is the worst, hands down the absolute worst. How many of you have actually read ahead in the text and you know what's coming? Okay, yeah, it's, it's awful. I actually gave a disclaimer last week in North Liberty for parents Bring your children at your own discretion. I'm not going to say anything that the text doesn't, so parents, you can can relax. But the the text itself is just, it's just awful. The narrative is, it's the worst. Have I made that point? It's, It's pretty much the worst. Now, why is it the worst? We're going through the book of Judges, and there's an oft repeated phrase. Uh, Maggie just read it. It's repeated four different times. In those days, there wasn't a king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And, and last week, uh, Pastor Jason, um, he, he preached on 17 and 18. And what that, that shows us in the narrative is everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes in the context of how they worship. So last week, Jason preached on adultery, or adultery idolatry, which is spiritual adultery. He preached on that. And this week, we're going to take a look at the consequences paying the price for, for, uh, for spiritual idolatry. That's what we're going to take a look at. So um, the goal this evening is this. I hope to, from the text and the narrative, demonstrate how idolatry is the root of all immorality and all injustice and why our only hope is the saving work of Jesus, the one true king. So... Everything that you see going on uh, in the world where, any, where there's any immorality, where there's any injustice, at the root level, idolatry is the explanation for it. So this is what we're going to look at. We're going to, um, okay, overview of the fallout. I'm wondering. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking this looks like an old version of the PowerPoint but we'll just roll with it and see what happens. So let's pretend like it's what I have on the paper and we'll just go there and where it doesn't match, I'll fill in the gaps. So three things we're gonna look at that look kind of like that. Number one, we're going to see why idolatry actually leads to ruin. Okay, we're gonna look at the why. So think of this as the principle. 
why idolatry leads to ruin. That's the first thing we're going to look at. The second thing we're going to look at is how it led to Israel's ruin. We're going to look at a case study. So the first thing we're going to see is the principle what applies to everybody. Then we're going to zoom in and we're going to take a look at the case study, chapters 19 through 21. We're going to see it in action. Originally, I was going to just roll out the text. We're going to go through 19 through 21 and explain how and why it happened. But the problem is when you do that, it's like looking at a car accident and then trying to stop and think about how going through the windshield broke the person's neck. So rather, we're going to look at it, we're going to look at it in principle in a classroom setting at first, and then we're going to stop at the side of the road and look at the car wreck. That's what we're going to do. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to see, there we go. Bo is awesome. Look at that. Woo. Thank you, Bo. (laughs) We're going to look at why Jesus is our only hope. We're going to look at why Jesus is our only hope. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord's mercy as we go through this. Father, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for mercy. Man, we need it. Uh, We thank you for grace, and we thank you for Jesus. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us in truth as we look at this text. Help us to make sense of a really, really difficult time in the history of the world and in history of Israel. And show us how that parallels our own time and our own hearts. Um, Lord, would you make much of Christ tonight as we preach and look at the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. So, why idolatry leads to ruin. So, Whenever you see something repeated in Scripture, it's repeated for a reason. This phrase is repeated four different times. Four different times. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see it in chapter 17, verse 6. What the author is doing there is he's explaining, in case you're wondering, how in the world would somebody who understands Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, and all the things that God said, this is how you worship me, how in the world did they think it was a good idea to take silver and make an idol and then make a shrine and then anoint your son as priest and then hire another? How do you get to that place? Well, there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So notice this, they think they're doing what's right. They're not trying to do evil. They think they're doing what's right. But the the baseline, uh, the place where they're arriving at that is in their own minds, in their own minds. So that's the standard. That's that's what happens. So that's what we have here. Now, I'm going to jump forward to the New Testament because Paul in Romans explains what happens at a head level and a heart level when a person engages in idolatry. Now, if you're new to grace and you're not, you're not sure you've heard this term idolatry thrown out about five times already and you're like, wait a minute, idolatry? I thought we're in the 21st century. Here's what Paul means by idolatry. Here's what the Bible means by idolatry. And here's how it applies today. Idolatry is just simply worship but it's taking something which doesn't deserve our worship. It could be anything. It could be your status as a mom. Uh, it could be the desire to be liked. It could be the accumulation of wealth. It could be your sexuality. It could be any number of things. It's taking something which isn't necessarily bad and elevating it to a status of ultimate. That's, that's the most important thing. So you take God off of the throne and you put something else there. That's idolatry. So Paul is describing to the church in Rome, he says, for although they, although they, that is people who know about God, they know God, they didn't honor him as God. 
They didn't honor him as God and, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So let's take a look at what happens here. When a person like chapter 17 and 18, Micah, his mom, and the whole, all the nation of Israel, when they begin to worship idols, when we take something which is not God and we elevate it to the status of God and we make that the most important thing in our lives, something happens. What? Our thinking becomes futile. It, that doesn't mean we become stupid. It doesn't mean we, become, we lose intelligence. It means that, that our intelligence, it, it, it becomes futile in other words, it's self-destructive. This is not about intelligence or IQ. This is about the end that our intelligence takes us is nowhere. That's why Proverbs says there, there, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So foolish, our, our hearts, our thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, now what, what's going on? Number of things I have listed here. Some of these you probably saw Jason talk about last week. When a person steps into idolatry, their view of God changes from being the God Almighty who is worthy of worship to God becomes reduced. It's a reduction. It's a reduction of God to essentially a vending machine. It's, and these, these individuals can be monotheists. They can have right doctrine. You can confess Jesus as Savior and Lord and still engage in idolatry when you reduce God to something less than he is. So, you look at him like a vending machine. You don't think of him much until you want a Coke, until you want something fixed, until you're hungry, until you have a need. You never think of him until that time. So it's a reductionary view of God. How we view a religion when we're idolatrous is the means or the way that we work the machine. It's how you get the coins in the vending machine. It's how you push the buttons. I want the Snickers. F5. Oh, should I tithe? How many times do I have to go to church? Do I have to be baptized? And if so, which way do I become baptized? All of those things become a means by which we approach the vending machine to get what we want because we've reduced God to something that he is not or less than he is. The view of obedience, it's completely optional. If it makes you happy, then by all means, do what the vending machine says in the book or whatever religion you follow, right? If not, then feel free to do what is right in your own eyes. That's what happens with idolatry. How do you view self? Self is king. In those days, Israel didn't have a technical king, but everyone individually saw themselves as autonomous and they saw themselves as king, building their own little kingdoms. Now, what happens when we think that way? How do we view others? We view others as commodities. That's a pretty cold statement, but follow me here. You'll see it played out in Judges 19 through 21. We don't view them as human beings created in the eyes of God and created with his image. We view them as biological beings which are less than we are. They exist for our pleasure or they exist to cause us pain. 
And so we have, if, if, if they increase our happiness quotient, we want them around. If they don't increase our happiness quotient, we do not want them around. Or a slightly less callous version is we view them as servants, a means to an end. They can make me happy if they serve me and give me what I want, or they can make me sad or take away from my happiness quotient. It's a very selfish way to look at the world and the way to look at people, but that's what happens when you're king, or at least you think you're king. And then lastly, the view of justice. View of justice is justice is for those who have power. For those that don't have power, the servants and the commodities, justice is strictly optional. That is how you and I can look back in church history all the way back to the time of Judges, actually all the way back to the time of the garden, up until the present day, and you can see the people of God, those who claim to have a relationship with God who love him, and you can see, and it answers the question, how did they not see this? How is it that people on this continent hundreds of years ago who loved Jesus owned human beings as slaves. How was that possible? Or a little closer to our time, how was it possible then in the deep South during the time of Jim Crow that white Christians could look at black Christians as less than them and not allow them to worship or eat at the same restaurants? How was that possible? That's how it works. That, that's always how it works. Nothing's changed. Thinking becomes futile. You treat people as commodities. You treat them as servants. And justice is only for the people who have power, who have power. So that's from a clinical observation. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Now, how did idolatry lead to ruin? So we've been in the classroom. Now we're out in the the squad car, we're pulling up to the side of the road and we're looking at the carnage. Okay, we've studied the physics of car accidents just a second ago. Now we're actually seeing what happens when there are people involved. So last week you looked at idolatry. You saw it in action, exchanging the glory of God for that which is not God. Their view of God changed, their view of religion changed, their view of self changed, their view of others changed. And now we see it all starting to play out. We start to see the consequences of futile thinking and hearts which are darkened. Let's take a look. First, it leads to immorality. Immorality. So here we are. We're in the text. Hold on. Starts with chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in remote parts of a hill country of Ephraim who took, of, uh, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. Stop. There's a new term, concubine. Not something we use in everyday language. What in the world is a concubine? A concubine is a woman who has been objectified and is now a commodity. She's not a wife. She has legal rights in that the man cannot cast her to the side of the road without, without financial consequences. But she's not a wife. A wife, according to scriptures, when, when a couple gets married, how many of you have been to a wedding recently? I did a wedding last night. They did a unity candle. You've seen the unity candle? You have the two candles burning and the one candle which is not burning in the center. 
So the unity candle, you have the two individuals and they come along and they take the lit candle, which represents them as individuals, and they both light the unity candle in the middle. And then once that middle candle is lit, they blow their individual candle out. What is that about? The scriptures say, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. In marriage, the man gives his whole being, emotional, physical, spiritual, financial, every aspect of his being to that spouse. The wife gives every aspect of her being, emotional, physical, spatial, financial, everything. They exchange everything. They become totally one. There is a laying down of your life to the other. Not so with a concubine. A concubine, a man takes a woman and takes from her her body and gives her financial security. End of story. She is an object. She is a commodity. So at least we're starting on a high note in verse 1. Oh, but it gets much worse. Let's keep looking. So from here, she commits adultery. She steps out on the guy who treats her like an object. Who knew that that would happen, right? So she cheats on him, and now she is estranged from him, and she is living with her father. After a few months, he longs for her affection, and he goes to woo her back, and he shows up at dad's house. Knock, knock. I'm here to get my concubine. The father invites him in, keeps him for a few days, and he delays his returning back to his hometown. Eventually, the Levite says, I got to go, and he leaves. As they're leaving, it's starting, the sun is starting to go down, and they're close to Jerusalem, and the guy's servant, the Levite servant, says, hey, we should stop. We should bed down for the night. Here's Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, great place, right? Not in those days. It's not filled with Israelites. It's filled with Jebusites. They're not Yahweh worshipers. They're pagans. So the Levite says, I wouldn't be caught dead staying in Jerusalem. There's no way we're going to stay there. We're going to stay in a city of our own people. So they continue to move on and they go to Jabesh or uh, Gibeah. I'm sorry, they go to Gibeah. Gibeah is an Israelite town. It's a small town. And he says, we'll stay here. So they go into the main square. No one invites them into their home. They don't have Hotel 6. There's no Hyatt Regencies. In those days, when you show up in a city, you're dependent upon the hospitality of the people that live there. No one's hospitable. No one's inviting them in. So they figure, I guess we're just going to have to sleep in the town square. As this happens, an old man comes in from working the field and says, oh, no, 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 you're not going to stay in the square. That wouldn't be safe. I have plenty of room. Come stay with me. So they go. They go to this man's house. He feeds them. They have a little wine. Everything is great. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. There's a knock at the door, and it says that the worthless men of Gibeah had surrounded the house. As they knock on the door, they demand and say, and I quote, bring out this Levite that we may know him. They're not asking that they exchange business cards. That is a Hebrew euphemism for let us know him and have intercourse with him. That's what's happening. Now, the father who's invited them in says, don't do this wicked thing. So obviously the father realizes that's not kosher. We can't have that happen. Don't do this wicked thing. Instead, 
take my virgin daughter and his concubine. What? What do we see here happening? People have become commodities, including his daughter, including this concubine. They're less than people. Don't do this wicked thing. Take my daughter. Take his concubine. Oh, but it gets worse. At this moment, the Levite, being the the stallion that he is, pushes her out the door and shuts it behind her. So he pushes his concubine out the door, shuts shuts the door behind her. And the next thing we see in verse... Verse 25, so the man seized his concubine, made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. That needs no commentary. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. So you get the picture, right? So we've covered the immorality section. Now let's move to the indignation section. This is where people start to get ticked for what's happened. So, verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up. Let's be going. Okay, now I'm going to stop and just pause right here. This has been an awful section in the Bible. It's been a horrible narrative. How many of you at some point in time in this narrative felt, felt indignation and anger kind of welling up in you? For me, I feel it right here. At what point did you feel that? When did that that feeling of indignation start to rise up in your throat, in your chest? If you're not indignant at something in this story, you're a sociopath. You you have been desensitized, desensitized to, to injustice and violence and wickedness to the point where nothing bothers you. But I'm guessing that's not the case. I'll tell you what does it for me. When he pushes her out the door, that's when I start to shake. When he says, get up, let's go, I want to leap back in history and beat him senseless. I'm, I'm absolutely unhinged. Now, this is a confession, and it's telling about a desensitizing in my own spirit. Do you know what doesn't cause me to be incensed? Is when a Levite takes a concubine. It didn't bother me. Why? People do that all the time in our culture. People objectify one another all the time. Just been desensitized to it. I don't even notice it. It's just part of the narrative. God was as indignant when that man labeled her a concubine and used her for her body as he was when those men abused her and ended up killing her. See, that's what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes 
everyone is selectively moral. There's different things that could cause you indignation, but other things don't because each person is their own standard. And you're only indignant when your standard is violated, but not God's standard, unless, of course, God's standard happens to be your standard. Then, of course, you're indignant. What happens next? What happens next is the man, the Levite, takes the concubine and cuts her into 12 pieces. He then sends those 12 pieces to the elders of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, demanding that justice be done. The 12 tribes receive this and they say, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, which is a good thing. If this were normal, this would be really bad. It's bad enough as it is. And it says that Israel arose as one man. And they asked the Levite, they, they, they quizzed the Levite, they said, tell us what happened. And the Levite says, here's what happened. They took my concubine and they abused her all night long and they killed her. Notice all of the detail that he leaves out of the story. He doesn't tell them that he thrust her out and shut the door behind her and opened the door 12 hours later to find her dead on the doorstep. Notice the selective indignation. All of Israel is up in arms. We have to do justice against these individuals. But the Levite, he's off scot-free because he didn't violate anything according to their cultural standards. It's normal to treat women as objects. That's okay. You just can't take his object and use his object without his permission. That's where they drew the line. So what happens next? What happens next is injustice. What happens next is injustice. It starts out on a quest for justice. They show up to, to Gibeah. They show up to Gibeah, that is uh, 400,000 Israelites. They show up to the tribe of Benjamin, of which Gibeah is a part of, and they say, hand over those individuals who are responsible for this atrocity. So far, so good. They're looking for justice. Benjamin responds with, no. Why would they say no? Well, here's a funny thing that happens when you're engaged in idolatry. Your view of self becomes king. Your view of others becomes servants. Your view of people like you, your tribe, we have to protect our tribe because our tribe can assure us prosperity. Other tribes that are not like us, they're a threat to our prosperity. So what happens when you're engaged in idolatry, is you begin to excuse the sins of your tribe and you punish the sins of other tribes. And this is how injustice takes place on national scales. This is how whole people groups are denied justice. This is why tribes go to war. So Benjamin is not going to hand over the handful of men who are responsible. They are going to go to battle with all of Israel to defend their tribe's right to be their tribe. And so they engage in war. What happens there? Israel, Israel loses 40,000 men. Benjamin loses 25,000 men, leaving only 600 male Benjamites alive in the entire tribe. Oh, but it gets better. Worse. Gets worse. All of Israel, after the Civil War, they're done with the Civil War. They've annihilated all the men of Benjamin except for 600. They say, may we make a vow 
No one in the entire nation of Israel is to give their daughters to a Benjamite man. And everyone's like, yes, we swear an oath to God Almighty. May it never be. 10 seconds later, oh, wait. Within one generation, there won't be 12 tribes. There'll be 11. What do we do? We made an irrational vow. Oh, we'll fix it. Hmm. Which village didn't participate in the Civil War? Well, Jabesh Gilead. Nobody from that village showed up. Perfect. We'll annihilate everyone in that village and take their daughters. They killed every man. They killed every woman. The only people that they left alive were 400 virgins. Do you know what we've descended into now? Ethnic cleansing and human trafficking. But it gets worse because if you're into math, you know that 400 stolen virgins won't go around to 600 Benjamite men. They're 200 short. What to do now? Hmm. Well, there is this village called Shiloh, and they have this festival. Every year, all of the young virgins come out and they dance. So here's what you do, 200 Benjamite guys. Go hide in the edges of the vineyard where they come out to dance, and as soon as they come out, go snatch one. Again, human trafficking. These are children. These are young girls, people's daughters, people's sisters. And the, and the tribes say, we'll cover your bases and we'll tell them, have pity on them because we made a vow that we can't give any of our daughters. So it'll be okay. And then the story ends with, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, explaining how in the world do monotheists who have the Ten Commandments do everything that we've just looked at in the last 10 minutes? Well, there is no king and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Their thinking has become futile. Okay, how many of you have become thoroughly depressed and you're ready to move on to something that's halfway encouraging? I'm ready to move on. So, why Jesus is our only hope. Now, there's no mention of Jesus in the text, but I do believe there's a reason that they keep saying in those days there is no king and everyone does what is right in his own eyes because that's supposed to cue us in that, oh, maybe the problem is they don't have a king. They need a king. Yeah, sort of. They get a king shortly, Saul, and he's terrible. Then they get another king, David, and he's pretty awesome for a while until the whole adultery murder thing and treason thing. And then it kind of goes south from there. But then there's Solomon and he's really wise, sort of, except that he accumulates a thousand wives, 900 or 600 wives and 300 concubines and, and then all that wealth stuff and then the you know, enslavement of his own people. But other than that, he's pretty awesome. And then there's civil war and then it all goes to crap. It's, a, it's, a, it's totally awful. And there's not any good kings. Well, there's a few good kings. They're, they're halfway decent. And then there's exile. And then there's 400 years of silence until the one true king comes. I think what the author is doing is pointing to the need of a unifying ruler and a leader who's going to bring some sense so the futile thinking and the darkened hearts can become right thinking and righteousness. And that person doesn't come until Jesus. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke 
to her fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of a majesty on high. When you meet King Jesus and you come to know him intimately, he changes you from the inside out. He changes the way you view everything. When I came to college in 1985, I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for answers in scripture. I was not spiritually interested. But through my own futility of thinking and my own foolishness and my own darkened heart, I fell into the same kind of idolatry that we're reading about here. I objectified human beings. I objectified the opposite sex. I viewed them as commodities. I was steeped in pornography. And I thought nothing of it because everybody else was too. But then God, me, God brought me to the end of my rope to a place where I met Jesus and I understood that this Jesus, he came not for the righteous, but for the Gibeonites. He came not for the righteous, but for the Levite who pushed his concubine out into the street. He came not for the righteous, but for the individuals who took 200 children and made them brides. He came for them. He came for me. He came for you. He came for people steeped in idolatry. Why? Because he loved us. Because he wants to redeem us. And what happens? Your view of God changes. When you see a God like that, who loves you like that, suddenly you stop viewing him as a vending machine to, that you come to occasionally when you need something and you see him as the great lover of souls and he begins to warm your affection and your heart goes out to him and you desire to worship him. Your view of obedience changes. I had absolutely no interest in knowing what the Bible said until I met Jesus. Why? because I was afraid it was going to tell me that some of my behaviors needed to change. I had no desire to learn what the Bible said because I had no desire for obedience until I met Jesus, until I was redeemed, until I was forgiven, and then I could not not want to follow. And that's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That doesn't mean that you obey perfectly, but there is an inward desire for obedience. There's an inward desire to not do what is right in your own eyes, but to say to your father, Father, what is right? And let me do that. Your view of self changes. Instead of being king, you see yourself as an adopted child of God made righteous in Christ and a servant of the one true king. Your view of others change. Instead of seeing people, women, as commodities, you see them as sisters in Christ. You see them as people made in the image of God to be served, to be loved, to be encouraged. And your view of justice, it begins to change. Justice is not something that you demand for yourself when you were wronged, although there's nothing wrong with that. It's not something simply that you demand for your people, the people in power. It's something that you begin to demand for all people who are made in the image of God. And it changes the way you view the world. And it changes how you view things. 
That's why Jesus is our only hope. I hope that if you've gone through this series in Judges, you've looked at this and you're like, you know, aside from the technology, we're pretty much just like these people because we are. And Christians can be just as guilty of idolatry as, as the judges, the people in the book of Judges can were. But Christ can change all that. So before we go to communion, I have to ask this question. Is Jesus your king? In those days, Israel had no king, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I'm speaking to probably most of you profess to be Christians. I'm not asking you if you're a Christian. I'm not asking you if you've assented to the doctrine that's espoused in the Bible. That, that's, that's something. I'm asking you if Jesus is your king. You may view Jesus as your, as your savior, died for your sin, rose again. You have a relationship with him by grace through faith. That's essential. But is he your king? Have you stepped off the throne of your life and have you given him your life? Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know what that means? Is that I'm not different than the Gibeonites. I'm not, neither are you, none of us. We're all at the same moral level. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is guilty of some form of idolatry, taking something which is not necessarily bad and making it ultimate. That's just the way it is. And then there's consequences for that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. There's consequences for futile thinking. But thank the Lord for the common a conjunction. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Christ specifically became a human being so he could atone for the sins of all those who'd fallen short of the glory of God, including the nasty Gibeonites, the nasty Levite, and nasty Pastor Brooks, and everybody else here. That's the beauty of the gospel. He came to set us free and change our hearts that we might worship him in spirit and truth and have a totally different view of humanity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to give yourself for us. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth, to put to death idols and worship you rightly. Forgive us for our idolatry. And Lord, I pray that you change our hearts and that you would make us you would make us like you, that you would renew our hearts, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would bring us to a place of worship where we see you as altogether glorious and we see you as worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.